Welcome back to the From His Top podcast. In this week's episode, we have a first of its kind where it's an intra-network crossover with conventional wisdom host Samuel Vergen. Sam and I discuss his conception of conventional wisdom in topics ranging from King Kardashian to podcasting and video games to gender roles, COVID, and our response to values. I hope you enjoy this friendly discussion and stick around next week for part two where Sam flips the tables on me. Hey there, and welcome back to From Is to Ought. I am thrilled to bring you this week's guest. We've tried this once already. It was a three and a half hour podcast, but it was too much of a mix of style. Yeah, well, we could do it again, but uh, too much of clash of styles in terms of formality and kind of clunky. So we figured, thought we would just do it naturally this time. Uh, Try it one more time too, later, just to see how it works. <laughs> Third time's the charm, Goldilocks yeah. style. My guest this week is Samuel Vernon. He's the host of the Conventional Wisdom Podcast on this network, and he is a co-founder of FreedomCast. Sam, welcome to From Miss Dot. Thank you very much for having me. Let's get to it. All right. Awesome. So my first question for you is, why on earth did you decide to help found this company? Uh, that sounded good at the time. It was mostly <laughs> on a whim. Now, uh... Well, you know, I've always wanted to do a business with, you know, my buddies, with friends. And I figured might as well do, you know, jump on this bandwagon <laughs> and see what, where it goes. It really is sort of a, you know, we put, we put a couple hours in a week, I, I suppose, for mm-hmm. the past year or so, just to kind of get this thing up and running. Right. So it's not. It's not, I'm not heavily invested. You know what I mean? I didn't sink my entire life savings into this, but at the same time, (laughs) (laughs) at the same time, it has a a great potential. So, and it's, you know, it's fun and it's a good way to get my ideas out there. So yeah, I'm very interested in doing it. Awesome. And I hope we can talk about some of those ideas today. I, I agree. I think that having a business with uh, people you trust and uh, with or for whom you have respect is a, is a delight. Okay. Here's a question okay. of all the businesses that we've discussed to start. <laughs> how come we landed on podcasting? Well, because we're millennials a, <laughs> and if you're a millennial and you have a microphone, you're a, you're a <laughs> podcaster. You may not know it yet. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, I listened to a, a podcast uh, where the host was saying he was calling for a, uh, suspension on all new podcasts as of about a month ago. <laughs> Just no more new ones. Yeah. Until we yeah. figure out what the heck is going on. But, uh, <laughs> but no, anyway, it's, um, that's a fair question. Well, one, I think that some of the business ideas we've discussed require much more capital to start up. Yeah. So that's sure. one, one answer. Yeah. The second answer is some of the businesses we've discussed, like having a cigar shop are more what we're looking to do uh in our retirement than as our primary career though there may be what about what about our private security force <laughs> oh yeah where we start a mall security team no um, i don't think that that was i think that was more of a script for a movie than the actual business idea <laughs> we could do it yeah but no that's those are fair questions the I, I do think it's the capital reason. I also think that yeah. it's something we can we can all afford to do 
seriously, but in a genuine part-time manner, right? So yeah, right now sure. we average probably one podcast a month across the network. Uh, so across three podcasts, and we'll probably have that once we're really up to speed on everything in starting beginning of next year, we'll probably have that up to about two podcasts a month across the network, as well as an additional quarterly podcast. Mm. And and so it's a, it's a, something where we can naturally scale into things where the all the costs are not variable. So we're not, you know, as we put in more effort, it's just value extra return to us. And more importantly is to the extent we think we're providing value to others, either through the guests we have on our podcast and bringing you know, new ideas or new people to light to others, or through our own kind of formulations and thoughts on things, um, then all the better. And, and that really is, I think, kind of one of the primary drivers of what brought us, the four of us to the table originally was we saw that there was a few deficiencies in the way modern discourse is addressing some of the more serious social and civic issues. And we each have kind of our own flavor on how we think of those things. And rather than just complaining about it, we thought, okay, well, well, what would it look look like if we were to try and do something about it? However humble uh, yeah. it may be, but you know, for, not for nothing. And, and we'll talk more about this during our December live stream to which everyone who's listening to this podcast is invited. Uh, but, you know, we have, you know, probably over a hundred listeners across the three podcasts and that's not nothing. Um, and Why would you say that? Why would, you should have said something like, oh, we've got like 650,000. That is also uh, over a hundred. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said that because I'm talking about when, when a lot of people cite their podcast statistics, they're exceptionally, uh, let's put it this way. One of our other co-founders has one podcast episode that has 60 views on YouTube, uh, or at least did like within like the first week. And we thought, oh, that's pretty exceptional, especially at the time, because we were not as well established back then as we are now. But then when you go and look at the average view time, it's like less than a minute. Yeah. It's like some bots or something. So yeah, we thought, okay, is it bots or is it, or is it, you know, as he mentioned, he might, because his stuff is more kind of like business consulting oriented. Could it have been that just how he titled things brought it up in terms of the YouTube yeah. search results more commonly? And unfortunately, whenever people clicked <laughs> on it, they realized, oh, this isn't for me. But but it's no. Possible. But some but some people would look at that and they would say, okay, well, that's 60 views. Whereas that's we why that's why I'm gonna label all my podcasts going forward, something like topless females and oh, all this geez. other stuff, just to get the clicks. <laughs> Please don't. That's going to be a weird blend of things uh, to try and cross over conventional wisdom with uh, <laughs> such smut, but no, but no. So when I say over a hundred, if I had to guess, I, you know, I probably shouldn't, but we probably have 90, 60, 50, something like that in terms of regular first week listeners mm. all on our main dis distribution platform. Right. So that's probably putting us in the ballpark of 250 regular first week listeners across the network. And then there's obviously people beyond that and people who listen on through other channels that we distribute mm -hmm. and that number is trending up. So that's good. Like all those are good, but no, I didn't want to say something like thousands because I don't want to inflate people's expectations. And also one of my favorite things about podcasts is when you discover a podcast that is relatively 
underappreciated. Yeah. Um, because one thing about podcasting is it does allow you to kind of explore any sort of niche that's interesting to you. Yeah. And so I, I personally, I'd rather have impactful podcasts for a small audience than kind of superficial podcasts for, you know, a large audience. And, and I know that given the direction you've taken your content, you feel the same way though, you know, we are growing and that, that is a, because we're a business and we have some other things attached to it. That is a goal. As uh, as a wise person once said, <laughs> the famous are rarely significant and the significant are rarely famous. Interesting. Hmm. Famous are rarely significant. Oh, it's hmm. like, like Kim Kardashian. Okay. She's arguably one of the most famous people in the world, but many people could argue that like, that's, she's not very significant. She's not very impactful. Well, okay, maybe she's impactful. Yes. But yeah, like, um, she just sells stuff, I guess, and sells products and whatnot. But I think that we're probably not her target demo in terms of where a lot of, well, certainly for whatever she sells, but also in terms of maybe her broader cultural appeal. I will say this, maybe she started out, my impression is she started out, um, well, there was some exploitation, first of all, but then second, she was famous. And then it seems as if she's tried to pivot from being famous to being impactful. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, it's it's a, I think, not that she needs redemption, but I, I, I find that, to be a redeeming characteristic of someone whenever they come across fame, however, honestly or genuinely, and they say, oh, okay, well, I, I think I'm going to try and do some good or at least reduce the bad in the world. And, uh, and so she's done stuff like get involved with, uh, I think the innocence project or, or, or groups like that, where they essentially try and get people who've been wrongly or unjustly convicted of crimes, uh, either to have their records expunged or, or, released from jail um, or there's a stay of execution once. So I, I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that I agree with each of those individual cases, but to the extent that's something you believe in and she's worked very hard as far as I can tell to become a lawyer and to get involved with these. She's that's not. Yeah. I should clarify. It's not a, it's, 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 a, it's not, a, it's not, um, to say anything bad about Kim Kardashian. Sure. It's a comment on what goes famous and what becomes widely mm. famous is often like a popularity contest. Sure. And so to appease the masses, oftentimes your content has to be, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. I'm actually blanking on the word, but is it, is it salacious? Is that the word? No. Is it like, salacious you know what I mean? It's is, is, one of the things, yeah, I would say. Yeah, like yeah. it needs to be, um, you know. Um, There's a lot of easily digestible stuff that yep, goes, yep. that's popular. If you're trying yeah. to get to a large audience, for example, and, and you have some like very important idea that you want to convey, hmm. it has to be watered down yep. into some form that is easily digested um, and unoffensive to a, a broad group of people. And then those right, are typically- exactly. Yeah, I don't. So I it's not. It's not a function. It's not. I'm not. It's not a slight against any person. It's the sure. nature of being famous, mm-hmm. and the nature of you know how you become famous. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, like for example, you could 
you could become very famous by selling a sex tape. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it's between two already somewhat famous people. Sure. Um, but that is just, you know, it's low hanging fruit for everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not really of substance. Sure. Okay. Whereas the people who might have brilliant ideas have brilliant ideas, but nobody wants to listen to that. Like the, you know what I mean? A handful yeah. of people do, but yeah. Yeah. I do think that podcasting is helping change that a little bit. For I sure. That what has caused a lot of the podcasting boom is that not very many people have a lot to say about everything or can draw an audience for their general conversations. Not everyone mm-hmm. is Joe Rogan, for example, obviously, but just about everyone has something that they can say that is kind of insightful about at least something. And so I think that that is, again, we'll talk about this in December, but I think that's actually a potential growth model for, for podcast networks in the future. And you see these different podcasts pop up. And, and now actually what you're seeing is there's brand managers and personality handlers who have relatively famous people in their portfolio that they're trying to say, oh, you should start a podcast. You're a famous actress. Mm, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even potentially not a famous actor, um, but, but an actor generally. You, yeah. you know, people would want to listen to you talk. It's like, well, I'm not even sure people want to watch your movies or your TV shows. Uh, and you shouldn't just assume that people want to listen to you speak. You should consider what you have to say first. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, and great. If people want to like all the better, as far as I'm concerned, I think podcasting is great. Low barriers to entry. That's fantastic. But, but it's, it's really weird watching people try and astroturf support for a podcast around a personality mm. as opposed to like genuinely developing a podcast and helping yeah. the podcaster yeah. find his or her voice. So and that's the beauty of, I think, good ideas, right? Mm. So the, the fact that there's so many podcasts out there is a, is a testament to, well, I don't know if it's a testament, but it's a, it's a, well, maybe a testament to free speech. You know, it needs to be, it's a ton of ideas out there and the good ones will rise to the top. And so if you've got nothing to say, you know, your podcast is probably not going to do all that well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sympathize, but again, even some of the, you know, we're kind of in a very weird corner of the podcasting space, I'm sure, both in terms of what, what our podcasts are about, but also in terms of probably the podcast we listen to. I'm sure that there's podcasts on, you know, video games that are crazy popular. And, oh, yeah. and you know, it may not be of interest to you or I in particular, um, being the mediocre video game players and infrequent video game players we are, uh, or increasingly infrequent, I should say. But but even within those podcasts that are successful about video games, it's, uh, it's mediocre. I believe that you challenged me to a game of Super Smash Brothers at one point. And how did that go? Well, Sam, you played as Kirby. I so did not. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is cheating. <laughs> The 64 uh, version, by the way, if anybody's trying to date us. Yes, the Nintendo 64 version. <laughs> we have not known each other since the Nintendo 64, but that is the original Smash. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was... I just remember myself being so much better at that game, but I've now played... That you game. know what's funny? I took I took that like challenge so seriously. <laughs> so, okay, let's just back up. Okay. Me and Mike, we've known each other for a while since college, since the beginning of college. So we've known each other for... It would have been like almost 10 years at this point. No, no, no. More than 10 years, right? 
Yeah, more than 10 yeah. years. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I used to play the this N64 Super Smash Brothers, and I thought I was pretty good. And <clears throat> here comes Michael, <laughs> who I have always thought, okay, Mike, you have tons of great qualities about yourself. But one of them is not your ability to play video games very well. But that's not to say you don't, like, you're not good at other things. But anyways, your okay. uh, <laughs> if I could make a slide at you. <laughs> no, but your your <laughs> challenge, you were so confident too when you said that. You're like, dude, I'll destroy you. Like you had no doubts in your brain. And I was like, where is this guy coming from? So what I did, I, I distinctly remember I said, bus, I dusted off my 64. And started practicing, and then I remember, like when we when we finally went head to head, it was quite a uh, quite a spectacle, quite a defeat that you that you uh, was received. Here, here's what I remember about that. I remember trash talking, which, by the way, whether I'm like genuinely good at a video game or terrible at it, I enjoy the the trash talk, especially with. Sam, yes. because it's yes, because it's easy to kind of get you worked up about like, oh, I'll show you. <laughs> uh, whereas, like, as soon as I, as soon as we're done with that conversation, I'm on like to the next thing. And... Oh, I took that so seriously. <laughs> well, I think it. I do remember losing. Let's put it that way. That's that's all I remember in terms of the outcome. <laughs> but uh, but no, even within the the going back to the video games and the podcasting about or podcast about video games, I would bet that the rule still holds within that group or within that area of podcasting that people still go towards the podcast where there's something interesting or new um, yeah. to say, or it's at least said in a new or interesting way. Yeah. And so even though it's a, yeah. it's, it's like, it's a general rule that holds it in its own way, at each specific like sub genre of podcasting. Right. So for example, I, there are several uh, YouTubers who will review video games they'll do they'll review it you know when mm. it comes out or whatever um and i've watched a few of them and i wouldn't even classify these guys as they're that good you know what i mean like when they're playing the game but the fact that they can give an honest and good review makes their content great so it's, it's not the fact that they're excellent at the video game but what they're communicating on their their channel or in a podcast form is rings true enough for enough people mm -hmm. that they, they have good channels so yeah. there's there's i think we can talk about this a bit more when it when we dive into wisdom mm -hmm. um but there's a there's a bit of truth nuggets of truth in their commentary like you know oh this is this doesn't play well or this mm -hmm. you know whatever this sequence is not very well put together even if they can't play the game all that great which probably they play it better than i can let's be honest um but they still have a some kernel of truth in there, which makes their content great. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. All right. So that was a long Super exchange long. about why <laughs> did you decide to help found the network? So most of our listeners have tuned out by now. <laughs> yes. But okay, so you have a podcast called Conventional Wisdom. And I was hoping you could explain. A, why you chose the to have the qualifier conventional mm. in the title. Yeah. And then I was hoping you could give me a definition for what you think wisdom, how you think about what wisdom is. Sure. Uh, there, 
there's a few reasons the uh, for the qualifier, the conventional. Um, the quick, easy one that's not very important is the fact that a lot of the other qualifiers were taken. Like Modern Wisdom is is a channel, um, but <clears throat> the putting that aside because that really didn't even um, go into the factor much. But conventional is essentially what is accepted over a long period of time. Um, and wisdom tends to be that it's not the exact definition. I'll, I'll talk about that here in a second, but if, if your family has been doing something for generations and generations, it means that it's, it works in some way. Maybe they, they, um, who knows, they, they plant a certain thing under certain conditions and, you know, they're the, it grows tomatoes or whatever. You know what I mean? If your family's been doing that for a long enough period of time, they've developed like what works, what doesn't work. And the fact that it's lasted as long as it has means that you probably should pay attention to it because it's correct or it's right or it's good. So that's the conventional part. So wisdom is it's a, it's a, it took me a while to come up with wisdom. I, I do I wanted to delineate and I wanted before I even started this podcast, I wanted to make sure I, I understood what the difference between wisdom and intelligence or a wise decision and a smart decision, because I do believe there's a difference there. And the way I figured it out was I didn't want to like jump into like the exact definition. I wanted to give like a buildup to like, okay, why, why couldn't you say, cheating on an exam is a wise decision. Could be a smart decision. You might you might say, well, that's not smart because you're going to get caught. But what if I said that you were smart enough to where you weren't going to get caught? You knew you weren't going to get caught. Is that a wise decision or is that a smart decision? Now, you can make an argument for a smart decision because if I cheat on a test, if I know I'm not going to get caught, then I also know that I'm going to get a good grade. I also know that probably is going to help me with my, you know, getting into a better college, and that's going to open up some doors for a brighter future with different job opportunities and blah blah. Mm-hmm. So you can make the case that cheating on a test is a smart decision, but you really can't make the case that it's a wise decision because what would be wise to do is to buckle down and study for the test and test yourself. You know, sacrifice your nights, study, work hard, and then do your best on your exam, those elements, the sacrifice your work, or sorry, sacrifice your time to work hard, you know, maybe give up some social uh, interactions to sharpen your, your knowledge, to do well on the test. All those things are for the good. And so a wise decision is kind of like, it's a smart decision plus a good element. So it has to be it has to be a decision for the good. There has to be a good element in there. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by good in this instance, in this particular example, would be the sacrifice that you'd have to make to, to study longer in the, at night, the hard work, that it, the dedication that it would be, the, the willpower to keep going. All those are good qualities. And so it would be a wise decision to not cheat on the test, even if there's a chance of failure. Mm. So 
yes, wisdom is a decision. Well, it doesn't even have to be a decision, but it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, I guess a decision, decision with a good component in there. Mm. So another example might be um, investing, right? So it's okay. easy enough to invest your money. Well, not easy enough, but it's, it, some people would say it's a smart decision, mm -hmm. but it's also a very wise decision because investing is sort of delayed gratification. You're kind okay. of put storing money away, you know, in the present for a bigger payoff in the future. Mm -hmm. And that over time has shown everybody, it seemed to be somewhat of a, a, a law, not really a law, but it, it has shown enough people that over time, if you delay gratification, the payout in the future is worth it. Mm-hmm. Would be it would be sort of a weird, and that's why I said it's not exactly a law because it's not one hundred percent. You know, I could put money in the bank, trying to invest, but then World War Three might happen, and right. all this could go to crap. You know, so it would have been a if that was the rule, then it would not be wise to invest. But the fact that a one-off kind of happens, you know, the exception doesn't make the rule sort of thing. Right. It's right. still a wise decision. So yeah, let me, um, I'll just summarize. Sure. So <clears throat> I wanted, when I, when I started the podcast, I wanted to interject some wisdom into everyday social events or just talk about life in general, but interjecting a bit of the good in there, because I do feel that that conversation is not had, at least not to the frequency that, that I would like. People tend to talk about, they talk about current events, but they don't really specify the good and the bad in everything. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of talk about whatever is. And I wanted to focus and say, look, we need to interject some wisdom into, into everything because mm -hmm. we've got to have some element of the good in these conversations to know what is good and what is bad. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like that conversation was lacking. So that's sort of why you stepped into the void. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. So a couple of thoughts, one on with the regard to the conventional kind of qualifier, mm. This reminds me of an idea that was popularized by a, an author and mathematician, kind of. I don't know if he'd appreciate that term. He's a former Wall Street quant mm. and turned like philosopher now, I guess. His name is uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he has this idea of something called the Lindy effect. And so in general, what the Lindy effect describes is the expected lifetime or remaining lifetime of an idea or a thought of some non-perishable mm. thing is proportional to its age. That is to say, new ideas come up all the time or new versions of, mm. of ideas that have kind of gone by the wayside previously come up all the time, but they haven't stood the test of time. Yeah. So those that have stood the test of time are more likely in the future to continue to stand the test of time because there's something, it doesn't have to be universal about it. It could just be generally true, right? Like you said, the exception doesn't make the rule. Right. And, and so that, that means it's likely to be, but what it really means is it has some utility. 
Yeah, you can you can think of conventional wisdom. It's not. It's I, I probably described it way longer than I should have, but it's it's the collective sort of knowledge um, of so many people. Think of you can think of how many people lived before us and have tried to figure out this life thing that we're going through, and they to think that I know more than everyone that's come before me. It's, 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 it's not a good idea. <laughs> the hubris. Uh, so you can think of that as like conventional wisdom. It's the collective knowledge of everybody, but it's for, it's for a specific purpose. So it's not just the collective knowledge of marine mammals. Okay. That's not, that's not wisdom. It's the collective knowledge of everybody that's gone before us um, towards say a better life, let's say, because we're all just trying to live in a better life. We're trying to, yeah, flourish. So that's kind of, you can kind of think of it like that. Yeah. And I don't even think it has to be explicit knowledge. I think it could just, it could be something that's tacitly known. So it's hard to articulate or, or even something that it, you're kind of really unaware of, but that it is ingrained either you know, it's sociocultural, right? So you kind of like yep. learn it from those around you. Um, and it's been adaptive and that adaptation has been useful for people. Well, we've, so this is another interesting thing that's popped up from this is because I think it's important to understand, this is why, partly why I wanted to do this podcast, because I think it's very important to understand what is wise and what is not and understand why it's wise. So for example, up until maybe a few decades, uh, yeah, a few decades ago, everybody would have been on board with, well, maybe not everybody, but let's just let's just stick it to Americans. Um, most of Americans would have been on board with the idea of marriage, like you're supposed to get married, and then something happened to where now. Sp- someone will question it and be like, well, why the heck do I need to get married? And if you're not equipped to understand why marriage is wise, then you kind of are caught like a deer in a headlight. You don't really know, like something in the back of you is like, well, I'm pretty sure it's a good idea, but I can't really articulate it. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing that a lot in today's, I think in, in, in today's society, where a lot of the conventional wisdom is being questioned. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know it, uh, you can very easily be convinced that it's not necessary. So you need to be able to know why it's wise, why it's useful, why it's for the good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I yeah. That's important. Yeah. I think kind of interrogating and, and learning about and, you know, trying to be rigorous with why things are the way they are or why people have done things the way they have is good. And you shouldn't assume the as you said the hubristic point of view of well i know better or i'm more enlightened yeah Um, Yeah. there are certainly situations where along particular dimensions people and societies progress nobly but i think that the general uh, throws of a capital p progressive mindset yeah uh, are actually not an indication primarily of 
desire to do good, though I think that isn't a motivation for many. I think that they're primarily an indicator of, or typically an indicator of, people who are ignorant of history or nature. You mean nature is human nature? Or nature. Or nature. Or just nature. general nature. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I think a big one you see is gender roles. So I think, I think our society is uh, trying to figure out gender roles. And if you were equipped with conventional wisdom, that answer would be pretty straightforward for you. It's very difficult to articulate. So it's kind of like, you know, when you're asking a question on a test, you can give the answer, but then your, you show your work is really large. It's kind of difficult to come to that well, for one, it's difficult because you can constantly ask why, you know, and I think many of the people that are trying to, trying to redefine gender roles are, are perpetually asking why to things that already exist. And so it's kind of difficult, you know, eventually you're going to have to stop somewhere and say, this is, this is presupposed, you know, this is an axiom, uh, so it's, it's kind of difficult to do that. And I think we're having a crisis at the moment in our society in that particular subject. I think that that's a good description of the general crisis in terms of people don't appreciate that there's an epistemic like foundational kind of fracturing and movement, almost as if it's kind of like an earthquake at the foundation mm, of, yeah, of what hold, yeah. holds everything else up. I don't think, well, actually, I don't know. So when you talked about gen, when you mentioned gender roles, what is, because I'm sure that's going to be an instant red flag for many, but let's try and bring those people into what you're saying, as opposed to, you know, like the, the superficial version of perhaps what, what they have in their head. What, what do you think is the wisdom in having gender roles or in, uh, particular roles that tend to be, but maybe are not necessarily associated with one gender versus another. Yeah. Oh, I, I think, I think I can actually um, break it down without wisdom. Um, I mean, the, the, there is an element of wisdom there, but I can sort of even break it down to an is like this. It just is. And well, I think I can do it relatively easily. So I once heard that, um, I think I heard this applied to animals, but it's also applied to, to humans. But the male uh, sex is considered to be expendable. Um, we're the ones to go for go to war. We're the ones to die working on in the mines. Seems to me that we are expendable. But why really would that be? Well, it's actually pretty simple. <clears throat> if you have a um, hundred people. And one of them is the is a male, and you have ninety nine females. Then your your tribe or whatever that society will continue to exist. But if you have ninety nine men and one woman, it's going to be real difficult, almost impossible to continue. So that simple fact that men you can we can kill off hunt most men and human species will still survive. Um, tells you something about the role of a man. 
mean, we were pretty expendable. And in order for us to, to, uh, be somewhat functional in a society, we've, you know, we do those expendable tasks and for the female, I mean, it just is the fact that she gives birth and she, she produces milk and tends for children and typically is more in tune with that child, considering the fact that she, you know, for nine months was connected to that child. And even, even after birth is very intimately involved in that child's life in a way that the the male is not. So right there, just speaking about what is, you can already get a sense of those, those roles. What could be those roles? Now, I, I didn't say that the roles have to stay there, but you can at least start by saying, well, that is the case. Now, I do think you would need some wisdom to make the argument that those those roles are appropriate and they need to remain the way they are. That's when I do think you probably need a bit of wisdom because if you're just defining a role and you want that role to continue as it is, everyone's trying to live a good life. The male is trying to live, be the best male that he is. There's probably a reason why a good reason why you need to maintain this role and if you're just trying to swap things around and change roles and doing whatever, kind of getting away from the expendability of men or the nurturing care of women, you need to have a pretty good reason to do that. And in my estimate, there's not such wisdom in those in, in doing that in, in drastically getting outside of the, the norms of roles, those gender roles. So are you doing that in a general sense or in a universal sense? Uh, generally speaking, there's always exceptions for sure. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. What's interesting about that, Michael? Well, I don't know if I fully agree. I do agree that there's an adaptive function. Um, well, there's several adaptive functions you talked about evolutionarily for the expendability of men and the temperament of women to be more inclined to nurturing than men. The, the notion that that is not a general truth, some quote unquote academic disciplines would dispute, but that's, those people don't tend to believe in stuff like objective truths anyway, as a philosophical presupposition. So I'm not particular, which is funny because that statement in of itself is a claim to some sort of objective truth, but so I'm not particularly concerned with, how they might receive the, you know, what we're saying, but, but more generally, I do think that there is a movement in our generation, which is the millennials and, and the generation thereafter to like you, like we talked about earlier to question and unfortunately at times undermine, but, but at least question and questioning is fair and trying to improve humbly on the margins uh, is also fair the way things are and, and why that is the case. And I think that's totally reasonable. For example, I know a lot of women, as I'm sure you do as well, uh, though you're an engineer by trade, so so perhaps it's a slightly different self-selected group, who kick ass in the workplace. And, and, all, and conversely, a lot of men who are very intimately involved in the day-to-day -day lives of their children, for example. And both of those seem, it seems 
good to me that we have developed a society where such pursuits can be uh, realized. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I still don't, I don't think that, so what, what did you not agree with though, with what I just said? Because what you said was, at least the last part that what you said was, it's good that we live in a society to, in which the, the extremes, the exceptions to the rules can still be, can still lead a good life. And I would agree with that. That's perfectly fine. Um, but you said you don't totally agree with, with what my, my description. Well, I, if it depends on how strictly we want to define exceptions to the rule or, or extreme, because when I'm thinking about some of these characteristics, I'm thinking about overlapping distribution. So, uh, men and women fall on a range of temperaments, for example. But a lot of those, a lot of the those two distributions overlap with one another. So they're even though you can distinguish between men and women in general, um, based on certain aspects of temperament, and you can distinguish between extreme versions of we'll call it uh, maleness and femaleness in terms of temperament. Uh, even though the, the measures of temperament are, are have nothing to do with sex, um, well, they're not measured based on sex. But if you were to measure temperament between the sexes, you could say there would be extreme values in the tails that don't, where they don't overlap, and and so those would be disproportionately men versus women. But I don't. I, I guess maybe it's just a semantic thing, where I don't view it as like some sort of extreme thing for example for for there to be a, a a man who stays home with the kids and raises the kids or uh a woman who is uh you know climbing the corporate ladder and and that's their primary focus or or even to say that there's someone who is not called to have a family you know go get kind of giving away from the family analogy I, perhaps atypical is maybe just how I would describe it. Um, well, I think, okay. So, I mean, this is, I, I, I do think that we're just being semantic here, but I, I would say, no, those are extremes, but that's not to say it's not good or bad. It's not putting any sort of good or bad qualifier to them. You know what I mean? Um, or at least maybe, maybe, okay. What was your last, what was that? You said not extreme, but something else. Atypical. Yeah. Atypical. Yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm on board with that. Okay, so it's just I suppose just more of a semantic thing. When I think about extreme, I think about uh, deviation from what's normal, something like that. And so when you think talk about an extreme value, I'm thinking about something that's like a a noticeable kind of well established outlier. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So I think in order. I think the fact that we are discussing extremes, I mean, you have to, you have to acknowledge that there is a norm then sort of like definitionally speaking, then we are talking about, there is a norm to which we're measuring the extreme. Yeah. And that's something you're benchmarking against. Right. And so that was really my only, I tried to make a biological case for one case of one factor that might be at the norm. 
Um, sure. Yeah. The idea that, uh, for example, that those who birth children are women, but, but that's, that is somewhat, that, that is a statement of is right. And mm-hmm. so that's not, and I don't want to get into this, the from is to ought aspect of our episode just yet. Uh, but, but that's not clear to me that it prescribes certain courses of action as necessary conditions as a consequence of that and necessary meaning as in like, there's no deviation. Well, I would say I'm not, I'm not yet putting a good or bad qualifier to this, but I would say historically speaking, I think it does. So um, if you are, I mean, we can talk about modern society too, but I just, I'm sort of starting from the beginning to <laughs> define some of these norms. But if you are a tribe and the fact that you can give birth and you have a dwindling population, it probably means you ought to give birth. Um, if you want to continue, if, if you want to continue the, the population of your tribe or the fact that um, you can't give birth, but you can contribute to the tribe in other ways probably means you should. I hope that's not too extreme to say. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not, no, I'm not trying to make an assessment of the, uh, devi- the degree of deviation about your views. I'm, I just don't think you can get there without having something else presupposed. You, it's as a, a material fact about the world can inform your oughts, but I don't think that very many of them, with the exception of trivial cases, can dictate them. That's uh, true. I mean, yeah, no, no, you're right. You do need you do need a presupposition mm-hmm. for for. I once um so, I was listening to this great Jordan Peterson interview. Uh, it was it was an old one. Do you remember? Um, they have like this Canadian Canadian talk show. I think it's called like Talking Points or something like that. Where the the Canadian um, interviewer is like, I, I thought he was very you know moderate even, and he, he usually has a panel. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Firing line or something. I, I forgot what the name of it is. Talking Points or something. There's an old Jordan Peterson uh, interview on that one where I thought he sort of hit the nail on the head. You can, rationality is sort of like a tool, you know, the things that is your, 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 your logic that you can use in this world is sort of like a tool and how you use it. uh, You need some presuppositions to decide how you're going to use it. If you look around and the world is full of misery, suffering, and it's not worth living, you can rationalize pretty quickly to commit genocide or to inflict pain and suffering. That can be very rational. But if you look around and say, well, despite the suffering, maybe it's worthwhile to trudge forward, then I mean that's that's a that's a presupposition, then your oughts change, you know, your your you can decide to 
not commit genocide and to improve your life and improve the lives of others and all those others. But you definitely need that presupposition. Mm-hmm. Like, is yeah. life worth living or if it's not? You know, that's just one example. Right. No, I agree. I th- so this will go back to the, something else you you had talked about when when you were kind of outlining your your perspective on conventional wisdom and particularly on the wisdom aspect of it. You mentioned that it's something like behavior or an intentionality that has an impulse to push towards the good. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by the good? Yeah. So it's in order for me to properly define that, I I have to give a presupposition. Um, And the easiest like way I can give it is I believe that, say, if you were to follow rules such as the Ten Commandments, then life would be worth living and good. Those that is good stuff. So we don't even have to go through all of them. You know, I, you could you could only remember some of the heavy hitters of like don't don't murder, don't steal, um, that sort of stuff. So it's deeper than that. But in order to give the presupposition of what is the good, I mean, you're asking me to define good. You know, <clears throat> it's, uh, so it's all I can all I can go as deep as I can go is to a presupposition. And that is following a set of rules like the 10 commandments would be considered the good. Um, I think it builds more to that. You know, I think there's, there's definitely more to it than just that. Mm-hmm. But if I was going to start somewhere and it'd be easiest for everybody to sort of know and understand, I'd start there. So, okay. Um, in five words or less, would you, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, the, the, so if you take the 10 commandments, many of those are, um, kind of constraints on behavior, right? That's right. Yep. That's a good way of looking at it too. Good observation, Michael. Thank you. But if you have an optimization function, let's call it the good function. Okay. Okay. And you're trying to maximize that function. Your constraints on behavior will reduce certain, they'll help shape the function, right? Because they're going to be, they're going to preclude some areas that your function will not traverse, but you're still trying to maximize the function in some way. But what does that function look like? Rather than just like, rather than just a set of rules about which, which, by the way, I don't disagree with or have any issue with the fact that that you're trying to ground the good in in what is perhaps the for many, and I would argue as well, the objective good, the ultimate appeal to authority, right? The appeal to ultimate authority that mm-hmm. is God. But if someone were to come to you and say, "Hey, I want to be wise in my decisions," and you say, "Okay, well then." go forth and do good in the world. And they say, how do I do that? And you say, follow the 10 commandments. I think that's a reasonable prescription, for example, or certainly a good starting point, but the, but it's kind of like the problem we talked about earlier. It's not that the, those commandments following them is 
in and of themselves what define the good. It's more like those are guardrails to living a good life. Yeah. So here's another here's another presupposition that um, you have to take as true. So if you question this, then um, it opens up a whole new can of worms. But if you take this as true, meaning you decide it's a presupposition, then you can almost they are the guide. You can sort of dispense of the Ten Commandments and still go along these guidelines. And it would be something like you have to control your base nature. Um, just like you said, the, a lot of the Ten Commandments are limiting functions saying like, hey, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Some of them are, hey, you need to do this. Um, so like honor your father and mother, which is a good one. But I think at least half of them are don't do something. And so I could, I could dispense with those and just say, hey, <clears throat> it's wise to control your base nature. Because following your base nature, your, yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it. You will tend to do not good things. So um, this is the way I think of it. And it's a good conception because I think it, it explains the point and it also uh, gives a good representation for, or a visualization for seeing all this. So the moment you're born, so imagine you are on the side of a mountain. You know what I mean? You can either, there's two directions you could really go. You could go up or down. But it's really easy for me to go down. I mean, it, I, all I have to do is basically just roll over and whatever, just let gravity take over. It's really easy for me to go down. Just as the same as in human nature. It's really easy for me and you to be selfish, to... Um, be angry, be yeah, self-centered and much more difficult to climb up the mountain, meaning, Hey, let's, let's delay gratification. Let's share, let's forgive. Let's do all these other things. Those things are harder to do. And it's, you can even describe it like a, in terms of energy. I mean, it takes much less energy for me and you to not share, to be selfish. So you can even think of it like that. You know, if we're just robots trying to conserve energy and then you know we wouldn't do a whole lot of things you wouldn't run into a burning building to save anybody it's much easier for me not to so so let's bring this back to a point you were discussing a moment ago you're saying that if if you were to give some um, a more general singular rule that would direct behavior mm. in a way that would result in a you pursuing the good. And therefore it's a wise um, impulse to, to, to guide behavior in your interactions, et cetera, mm. would be to control your base nature, to have dominion over impulse. Yeah. It, well, it's not, it's not, it's also kind of difficult because then I have to define what base nature is. And in like you know, I don't have any statistics offhand or any research papers that I can point to to tell you, hey, this is your this is generally accepted as human based nature. Sure, but I think most people can understand at least to some degree what their base nature might be. You know, yeah. to get mad like 
vengefully mad mm -hmm. if somebody takes something from you that could be something trivial, you know, mm -hmm. or or to if you if you're a male actually. So this is another interesting thing that kind of talks about the roles. Males and females have to control different parts because their natures are different. So what that might look like for a man, so that will push him more into a certain role and what that might look like for a woman will push her into a different role. So yeah, it's um I forgot what the I forgot what I was my original point was and what you are what the question was, but each 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 person, me and you both, we all have to control something, control our human nature. Oh yeah, it was defining nature. That's what it was. It's not so easy to do, but I think most people can get a general sense and well to bring it kind of further back into my reason to start to start this podcast. One of them might be like, hey, to, let's to, let's expand. Let's kind of figure out, let's answer the question, what might be human nature? And what might that look like on a day-to-day -day basis so people can sort of understand it so that people can better control it? So, yeah. So I don't, I don't think anyone would take issue with the fact that you're not pointing to some white paper uh, or textbook about what you know, human nature is. Because I think that with just a little bit of introspection, people can say, okay, well, there are impulses or things I want to do that I know that if I did, or if, or if I did in excess, I would have an internal feeling or intuition that this is wrong in some way, or I feel shame in some way. And, and that is perhaps, and I would argue, an indication that you should avoid those things right yeah but but i sorry to interject but no fine. i i going back a little bit further in the conversation one of my goals in this podcast was to explicitly explain things that are wise and explicitly explain things so that when you come up against it when somebody mm -hmm. questions hey why the heck right. should you do this you've got some ammunition mm -hmm. well what you just said was something that was like hey anybody can actually take that and go or not feel shamed. I see a lot of that going on where somebody, instead of feeling ashamed of following their base nature, they've been, they've rationalized or they have right. they say convinced that, at some point that, that it's it, just oppressive to, yeah. uh, that you shouldn't, that you should be allowed to embrace all of your whims and fancy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I agree. I'm not making that case. I think. No, obviously. But, I, but I'm just saying that it's not it's not obvious that you should control those human natures because so many people don't. I actually disagree. I think it is obvious you should control. Uh, you should have dominion over your behavior and that it should be in accord with right order. But that... Why is that obvious? Because I think people who are not, are living in a way that is counter to that are... I don't think they're being honest with themselves. I think they have to lie to themselves to get to that point. Now, it may be, the, and by the way, I'm not saying that I do this perfectly at all, at all, at all. But, but I do think I am honest enough with myself where when I don't do it, if you were to say, hey, didn't you fall short there? I could tell you, yes. I wouldn't say something like, oh, that's just an arbitrary, um, meaningless uh restriction on me expressing my true self i would say well it might be an 
a restriction on me expressing something like my base nature, but that is not the same thing as saying that it's not a justified restriction. And we have all sorts of ones that we impose on ourselves that society imposes on us. And, and I agree with you that you're part of, at least what I see in, in the podcast episodes you've put out, part of what you're doing is you're helping elucidate, Hey, these are not just like trivial things that, um, you know, just some old people came up with and, and we all know better. And so we can just dispense with these and move on. I'm with you there. But I do want to, and this this relates to both what you're, the argument you're making and made earlier and the one I'm making now, which is you're talking about, in some sense, not conquering, but rightly integrating your base nature into a something that pursues the good. But earlier you said something like it's um, overcoming, and, and this is a, I suspect I know where you're going to go with this, but I want to hear it hear how you articulate it. When you talked about gender roles, my understanding is that you say that these gender roles have a, even though they're not universal, you're saying that they have a biological base to them, an evolutionary base to them. And you are not saying that we need to overcome biology or evolution or you know, societal um, enculturation with respect to those gender roles. And I'm wondering why in certain regards, but not in others. Well, I would say, you know, human nature, I think is different than biology, right? So I'm not saying- Do you think they're related? So that's a good question. I don't, I don't fully know. Um, Probably yes, but it's probably deeper than my level of education to get down to like an evolutionary psychologist would- probably know. Okay. Um, like for example, given the amount of time that women have been giving birth and that has been their, one of, one of the, you know, their functions as, as life has progressed, how does that play into their human, how does that play into their nature? Like their yeah, their human nature, not not biology, but their biology is to give birth. But how does that directly play in? That's a good question. I I could I could take a swing, but I don't I don't purport to like know all the the details of the the okay. interactions between physical biology and the psychology that goes on in our heads. Okay. Um but so <clears throat> It's obvious. It would obviously be dumb for me to say, or well, yes, dumb for me to say that everybody needs to fight their their nature. But women, part of women's nature is to give birth, so we, they should fight doing that. So obviously, there's a disconnect there, and so I'm speaking. There's 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 two different things there. There's the biology, and then there's the human nature. The the fact that when we, just like we are, you know, when you're born. I mean, take it as babies. I once, I posed this problem to several people, but I couldn't, it seemed to me that they didn't have a, a decent, no, they did have a decent response, but, but I disagreed with the response was, you know, are humans basically good? You know, kind of like my analogy is that when you're born, it's kind of like you're on the side of a mountain and it's really easy for you to go downhill, but it's harder for you to go uphill. And I think babies, 
are ex- a prime example of that. Now, babies are innocent. They haven't done anything particularly wrong. But, I mean, I just had a daughter and she's extremely selfish, extremely. And um, so she doesn't really do much good. Uh, she's not there yet. The fact that she's adorable and cute and all this other is, you know, beside the fact. But if, if you think humans are basically good, then how, where do you go from being a baby, being completely self-absorbed? At what point in your life is it just a switch where you're like, oh, okay, now I'm good. You know what I mean? I, that was my, that's my critique of the people who would answer in such a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I to try and keep track of this in my own mind, we can talk about babies, but we could also talk about just non-human animals. Okay. There's a difference between when you talk about like if a tiger mauls someone, for mm-hmm. example, God forbid, mm-hmm. um, if that tiger is hungry, mm-hmm. it's not clear to me that that's evil. Like there's not any sort of, you know, setting aside the religious debate about you know the morality of, you know, creatures other than humans. It's not clear to me that that is a, an evil animal. Yeah, um, and it's not clear to me that it's even. I mean, I guess in some sense it's selfish that forget tigers, humans kill other animals to eat. Yeah, but that's not clear to me that's wrong. But there is, you know, there are other stories um, in from different countries of particular tigers that kill for sport, kind of like that. It seems to be less a function of eating and more a function mm-hmm. of of something else in that yeah there's there's something it's as if they consider something wrong with that tiger you don't even have to take it to tigers house cats like sure. we you know we have a cat we, we had a cat mm-hmm. and it would kill something and then just leave it there mm-hmm. i'm like what are you doing yeah. like i wanted i wanted to see you eat the mouse but you're not you're just going to kill it and do nothing with it mm-hmm. but yeah so you can take it to house cats sure and so you know, when you say that, you know, your daughter's extremely selfish, it's like, yes, it's selfish insofar as preoccupied with surviving. And so this preoccupation with survival, I, I guess you can make the case that it's a form of selfishness, but selfishness to me seems like it has a, a dimension to it that, that gets into the moral space away from the just physiological needs space. And and for that reason, I yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that there is a link more generally, I should say. I think that there is a link between uh people's biology and the evolutionary forces that have played out across hum uh played out on humanity across time that help establish and shape what base nature is. And then we can go with a relatively uncontroversial example for uh, people love carbohydrates, typically speaking. And it's like, yeah, great, because we have some biochemical processes in our bodies that are relatively efficient in using those for energy. Well, we, for the majority of human history, have not (laughs) had abundance. We've had scarcity. And so we've, we're running on 
essentially hardware and firmware that is wired for scarcity in a time of abundance. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like we have a lot of people who overindulge in carbs. By the way, like I, you know, I think I take relatively good care of my health, but you know, I just killed a sleeve of brownies last night. So like I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's like it is the case that if we allow things to kind of just play out as they would unthinkingly, then what will happen is we'll overindulge in some things and we'll underindulge in others. And, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at too, when you talk about like not going into the building, for example, or, or rolling down the mountain as opposed to uh, overcoming it. The point about human nature and its links to biology and evolution and socialization, I think, I think it's fair to say that we're, neither one of us are the world's foremost experts on those areas. But I, I do think that there's, a, that there's credible evidence that there are strong links between the two. Yeah, I would agree. And I, yeah, I just don't know enough evolutionary psychology to really point to anything that says this is exactly why our nature is such. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting thing. So if I could take it away from the, the scientific stuff for just a second, because like I said, I don't exactly know, but your point about the tiger killing somebody and the fact that that's we wouldn't necessarily say that tiger is evil this is true and it's one of the things that convince i think you can probably arrive at with enough conventional wisdom is the fact that so okay you're you're mathematically minded so you'll appreciate this um there is a there's a plane of behavior that that we can exhibit that is similar to animal behavior. So it'd be like functioning on instincts. I'm hungry. I'm going to look for food, just like every animal. <clears throat> but what animals don't have is a Z axis whereby they know what's good and know what's evil and they would act accordingly. So humans do. And that's, I think you can kind of think of this as the soul, the fact that humans have a soul is that Z axis, that, that level of behavior that to where we don't, we don't just have to act like animals. And in fact, it's probably best. We don't, we don't eat with just our faces plunged in bowls or whatever, you know, there's, there's some elevation elevated aspect to our behaviors because we know a, you know, up and down good and evil up the mountain, down the mountain. <clears throat> and so it's interesting when thinking about that versus versus animals, you wouldn't necessarily say animals are evil, but you wouldn't also necessarily say that, you know, me like hunting for food and going to get food because I'm hungry. That's not an evil either because animals do it. Humans do it as well. If I'm hungry enough, I'm going to go out and maybe shoot like a deer or a rabbit or something and get some food. Um, that's not evil. But the fact that we have souls, the fact that we can differentiate between good and evil is that, you know, you could say that's what separates us men from animals. So I do think that that's part of, it's one of the understandings of conventional wisdom. I don't exactly know how to tie that to our evolution or our biology. Like I said, that's not in my wheelhouse. Well, fair enough. I think it's wise to uh, 
<laughs> be aware of that which you're unaware of. Yes. Uh, okay. So I have one more question that relates to this. Uh, but first, I want to give a plug for your podcast. So your first episode kind of lays out what you hope to do with with the podcast, as well as some ideas about what wisdom is and, and how we can we can think about it going forward, particularly uh, kind of like a wisdom framework for your for your future episodes. Uh, and you'll hear a lot of the ideas that, that Sam has articulated here. Your second episode is kind of a reflection on COVID mm. and yeah. particularly not obviously on the disease or sorry, the, disease, the virus itself, but, but on the response. response to it, mm. but not just, it's, it's more than that. Cause it's not just our response to it. It's our response <clears throat> and the sequence of events where we could have and did and didn't in different ways revised that response. At a social as well as an individual level. Well, yeah, it's not even what I had hoped to do. Maybe I did it, maybe I didn't. But what I had hoped to do was to generalize our response to COVID, figure out what's right and wrong about it, and to put it in context for any disaster, sort of, so to speak. Because I should hope that we learned enough from COVID to where if the next COVID came around or just a different disaster in general – we could at least learn from our mistakes. And what I tried to do is, first of all, I, I, I critiqued a lot of our response to COVID because I didn't think it was wise. And I tried to give some particular examples and some reasoning as to why what we did was not wise. And then hope to generalize that as far as just to live your life. So fear was a good example because fear was a I think fear sort of ran rampant as soon as COVID hit and whether or not you were the most susceptible person and you had many co was it comorbid comorbidities and you were 85 years old, you know, you had the most to fear from COVID. But even in that sense, there is a lesson to be learned about the amount of fear and how you should live your life and what, how, yeah, how, how you should allow, to what extent you should allow fear to dictate what you do. That was just an example, but yeah, I tried to do, tried to talk about that in our response and mm. get some generalizations. Yeah. Even for those who disagree with some of what you bring up there, I think it's a useful exercise to go through, especially given that it is advisable to learn from how you or we interact in a situation in a way where we can take away, okay, this is what we did well, this is not what we did well. Just even if you're just trying to make better decisions in the future, I think it's a useful exercise and, and you do kind of go through it very systematically within the wisdom framework you've laid out. And then your third episode is something that is related to values and this really interesting question you'd asked me maybe a year, year and a half ago, which is, is there a hierarchy of values and kind of what would be the top value of that hierarchy? And then we typically think about hierarchies kind of like as a pyramid, right? There's something at the top and that's what's most prized. But then there's this little bit of a paradox here because perhaps what's at the bottom is most fundamental and enables what are higher order values. So is there anything you want to say about, about that episode before we go into kind of my last question? Oh, um, 
yes. So I thought it was well worth it and a revolutionary endeavor, at least for me, to try and figure out what a hierarchy of values would look like. What's more important, um, friendship or, you know, respect. I mean, obviously some of them are, are, they don't equate very well. You can't really say one's more important than the, than the other, but then you could ask, well, are there, are there some values that are more important than the other? And if your answer is yes, then that just, that, that just opens up the floodgates for, okay, if, if one value is better than another, if values aren't all the same, if does, if everything doesn't have the equal value, you know, if one idea is not, you know, more valuable than another, or if it is more valuable than another, then that means you have to kind of figure out, unless you want to be completely lost in understanding what's important and what's not, you better figure out this, this rank order and at least the general structure of it. You don't have to be exact. In fact, I don't think you can really, there's not like a number one, number two, number three, but it is at least worth it to think what should at least be near the top of the hierarchy. Now, like I said, like you just mentioned, there's kind of a paradox here to think that in a pyramid, if you were to, you know, the stuff at the bottom is supporting the stuff at the top. So really a better way to think about it is the most important value is the fundamental one, the, the foundational one, the one that's rock solid at the bottom that everything else is built on. And it's it, at least that's just visually to kind of explain it, but it, it does help in further applications as you're thinking about it in the world. For example, somebody who has a revelation and maybe the revelation is completely life altering. It, it, you, you can tell when somebody has like the foundation of their framework of mind or their outlook of life shaken, the whole thing, like they become so unstable because they're like, well, I thought this was true, but if it's not, everything else in their life becomes chaos because what they, the, the revolution or, or something that they've come to realize is at the bottom. It's like, you know, they had to change the foundation on their house with, you know, it's pretty tough to do that and keep everything else there. Right. Yeah. Do you have anything, any insights about what one or more of the foundational values are? Oh, I got a ton. <laughs> um, they have the element of the good in it. Um, so a lot of the wise values, the ones that are have an element of the good are at the top. Now I would say um, you need a, I think you need God to be at the absolute top. If you are a, if you are going to wrestle with this, um, honestly, you need something that's presupposed. You need the ideal because basically the thing that's at the top of the hierarchy or at the bottom of the foundation, the number one value, it has to, number one has to stand alone. Everything else has to be rested on top of that. So you can kind of think of it then as a presupposition. It has to be presupposed because it's supporting everything else. Nothing else is underneath it. Um, <clears throat> so I think you do need God as number as your number one, um, but even if you don't if you don't believe in God, the the structure of the hierarchy itself could be thought out thought of as 
the most important value. So that's kind of um, non-intuitive, I guess. But in the last bit of that particular episode, I discuss and I I, I try and <clears throat> make the case that truth, we would say, is pretty pretty important. It's a, it's a great found a great value, and I do believe that it's near the top of the hierarchy or, you know, near the bottom of the foundationally speaking. But anyway, it's, it's, it's up on the high on the list. Truth is, but you will undoubtedly in your life be in a situation where you are not the expert in the room. You don't know what the truth is. You don't know what the truth might even look like. You're completely blind as to what is going on. So you need, you need a mechanism to navigate that you can't just rely on truth because you don't know what it is. You don't know where to look for it. It's completely a mystery to you. Okay. And the, the guiding light, let's say, would be the rest of your, your values in a certain rank order. Be like, well, okay, I don't know exactly what's true, but perhaps another high value that I could take as truth or I could at least try and pursue might be... Um, freedom or it could be justice or it could be um yeah uh you know yeah i was trying to think of some of the other ones that i mentioned in the podcast or mm-hmm. in that particular episode episode but anyway it would be you know you could say like the structure itself the thing that's going to guide me in the time of no truth could be thought of as the most important thing because well why not get- have that be called humility right explain i'm not the expert in the room why don't i exercise humility and you know listen learn um try to absorb what i can uh, you know it's not that i want to be afraid to speak up or anything like that but feel like i have that my role in that moment in time in that room is to listen and learn not to um opine necessarily something like that Right. Um, yeah, I would say that, you know, humility is certainly one of them. Um, it's definitely up there, but I think you need more than humility to navigate a space. Now, obviously that example was just you being in a room and not knowing what's up and what's down, but you can imagine in life, there are different scenarios to where you don't know what to do. Sure. So what you could do is follow some guiding principles that even though you don't, you've never been in this situation before, you have no clue what to do. Mm-hmm. You can follow something that would get you in, at least in the right direction. And that's, mm-hmm. you could think of that as the, the greatest value is like the structure of the values itself is the most important value. You could think of it that way. Mm-hmm. So maybe a little reflection and discernment is the most important thing that people sure. can, the exercise they can go through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Sam, I appreciate you entertaining my questions, and I wrote down some of the topics we've covered thus far. Kim Kardashian, podcasting, that time I beat you in Smash Brothers, gender roles, COVID, and values. Um, Perfect. Pretty comprehensive, but I I know you kind of want to flip the table. And with that, we'll call it a wrap for today. Again, stick around for the next episode where Sam flips the tables and asks me about From Is to Ought, our vision for Freedom Cast, 
and a lot of complicated questions we face today as a society. We hope to do more of these crossover episodes in the future, but until next time, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. From Is to Ought is a FreedomCast Network production. Please check us out at freedomcast.us or at freedomcast.locals.com. Thank you.